0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. What happens when parents and teens try to find common
1: ground on smartphones? Social media or anything online is neither a place to work out your problems or to solve anybody else's. We have to have these conversations
2: all the time. I got to be real careful about what I post because it's never gone like my dad said.
0: We assemble a panel of teens and their parents as a part of our series, Teens Under Stress. Plus, what this week's election might really say about how Coloradans want to shape the state. Surprise, it may all come down to growth. Also, the legacy of Mustang, otherwise known as Blucifer.
3: The eyes do not have any evil intent whatsoever.
0: And Flame Broiled or the Ugly Play, a Denver playwright's satirical take on race and bias in America. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. More than two-thirds of kids in the United States have their own smartphones by the time they're teenagers. For parents, giving advice and laying down rules can be difficult territory. As part of CPR's special series, Teens Under Stress, we asked a group of parents to join us for a conversation about how they talk about phones with their kids.
4: There is so much to this whole parenting thing, and... If I had been told that these little people would have cell phones and all of these various things, I might have reconsidered.
0: That's Zetan Lucero Mills. She has 12 children, ages 8 to 31. She's joking, but after many family meetings, she and her husband, Stan Mills, have landed on some rules for their kids' phones.
5: We have several rules. First, devices are not allowed in bedrooms or downstairs. They have to be kept in common areas at all times. They're not allowed to keep them overnight. They turn them in before bedtime.
4: And that's my favorite rule, not their favorite.
5: (laughs) We make sure they all have the same password or key code that, so if we need access to it, we can just grab it and... Put the code in.
0: Zatan and Stan are both students at Metropolitan State University. Zatan is working on her master's of social work, and Stan is working on a degree in sociology. Megan Macias also takes her 16 year old son's phone on weeknights, but she lets him hang on to it over the
1: weekend. They are Limited in terms of the kinds of apps that they can go on, and so automatically there's a parental control put on there for um, certain kinds of content. And then in general, I feel like our rules really are more about what you're allowed to do and how you treat people, you know, online, right? If there was ever anything that smelled like bullying, anything that ever looked like inappropriate, you know, texting, sexting, inappropriate posting. I can't say how long their devices would be taken away from them, but it would be a really,
0: really long time. Macias is a physician assistant. She specializes in children and adolescents. She also has 18-year-old twins who are in college. Cherie Garcia owns a kitchen and bath design firm. She draws a more strict line for her kids, an 18-year-old son and a 13-year-old daughter. I do not allow smartphones until
6: they go to college. She also doesn't allow her kids to use social media in middle and high school. So my son left for mine's this August and he got his smartphone 4 days before I dropped him mm-hmm. off. Um they have a flip phone, my daughter just barely got my son's old flip phone. So he survived in his <laughs> as the only kid in high school without a smartphone <laughs> as he told me all the time mm-hmm. and my daughter now has his old flip phone. I have the access code, like how you guys do. My daughter turns in at 8 o'clock at night. And what payoff do you see from your kids not having a smartphone? Conversation. We go to parties, we go to social events, and they're not buried in their phone. It's not a means of escaping for them because they don't have that option when they're in school. There's not the temptation of checking their phone of looking, you know, up apps and not paying attention in the classroom. My so, goodness. it's it's the right choice for our family. I know that it's not everybody's, but for our family it's a good choice.
1: Do you feel like it's more is it in your mind like a rite of passage or is it is it earning it or is it just all of the possible pitfalls that you can come into that you just as soon avoid that by not introducing it before their, you know, frontal lobe is more developed?
6: Yeah, so for me, I, um, I feel like giving my children something that their brain isn't fully developed to handle is giving them a device that we all know, right, is addicting. Um, and I know different kids are different because I have friends who have kids with smartphones and they're fine and they haven't had any problem. But just for my kids, I felt like giving them a smartphone would be saying, here's this big responsibility figure out how to make it work with your life. So for me, it was just easier to just not. And then not only that, I was able to have engagement with them and have conversations and not have them always face down. For me, I don't feel like this is something that
1: I would rather parent it now while they're in my house and while I can... Help them along and manage some of those issues. While I can hopefully help them be good stewards of their online behavior, help them to manage some of the things that can come up, and knowing that so far we have, I have kids that can that have managed it well. It really is a case by case basis for every family, for every child, and in my mind, the biggest question over the last several years is. What is it that affects each child individually to say that they're going to make the right choices? Is it, a, is it an accumulation of social media input? Is it parenting? Is it um, exposure to any number of things? And and I don't know. In my household, you have three different kids who are parented, you know, by the same two people. But on any given day, I wake up and think, what am I going to do with these three humans? I'm not sure. <laughs>
4: Yeah, I think that the last part of what you said is one of the keys for me. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to directly observe what they're doing and to try to guide their
1: behavior.
0: All four parents found common ground when it came to the primary reason they want their kids to have cell phones. They want to make sure they're safe.
1: us location services are turned off when you're on Snapchat but location services better be on on Find My iPhone. Uh, So Mm -hmm. find my iPhone, we have a family plan that ensures that they're where they're supposed to be when they say that Mm -hmm. they're gonna be at this place. As well as if you know the there were ever an issue they can find me. (laughs) I mean that's the reality. I mean I work I work in northeast Denver and I'm there late. And so there's, you know, times when that
6: goes both ways. I think that location services has been a big thing for us. That's Mm -hmm. important. And we have With mine, for my son, he got, I had to get him a phone because I got divorced and my ex-husband didn't have a phone. Mm -hmm. And I was not about to let them be at his house latchkey and not have a phone. So that forced me to get him a phone sooner than I would have liked to. Mm -hmm. And now Mm -hmm. I'm in a position where I own my own business. I work from home and to and from job sites. So my daughter didn't need a phone that quickly, but then she went to um, Washington, D.C. with her school just two weeks ago and uh, that's when she got the flip phone right. because I'm not going to send you to sure. D.C. Absolutely. Without a way to get a hold of you. Right.
5: Yeah, right. we have, it has changed over the years. Our youngest has a phone now because we want to make sure she can communicate. You know, she goes to and from her grandparents' house which is only a couple blocks away but we still in that couple blocks an eight-year-old girl want to make sure that, you know, she calls Absolutely. or I'm on my way to Nana's house or I'm, I'm, I'm at Nana's house that kind of thing.
4: We um, have all asthmatic children and we have had emergency situations wherein we needed to get in contact with someone quickly, we needed to move quickly. I would not feel comfortable sending my children off and thinking, you know, they weren't breathing too well when they left, but maybe they'll be okay, and then not being able to text them in the middle of the day and say, how's your breathing? So, yeah, I think that I have gotten much more comfortable with the phones
6: because it's a security blanket in a lot of ways. And I absolutely agree with that. And I I do think kids having phones is a good thing. My nieces um went to Arapahoe High School, and they were there at the time of the shooting. Oh. So my sister got the call. Mm-hmm. Their phones were how she communicated with them when... I can see for that situation, if she didn't have a way to communicate with my nieces, I know I would have went crazy as a parent. If you know your kid is in that school, you know that there's active shooter going on. And I mean, how it's sad, but that's our reality right now. This is the world that
4: we live in. This is
6: the world we live in. I live 10 minutes away from three active school shootings. I'm 10 minutes from STEM. I'm 10 minutes from Columbine. And Arapaho's up the street from my house.
0: But even as the phones allay some concerns about physical safety, parents are having conversations with their kids about the risks their phones can pose, especially emotionally. Here's Mills.
5: One of the paradoxes of social media as well is that the kids can get this sense of community and at the same time be totally isolated.
0: That resonated with Macias, who said these are conversations she has with her teens
1: repeatedly social media or anything online is neither a place to work out your problems or to solve anybody else's. We have to have these conversations all the time.
0: Now, we talked so much about their kids phones. We couldn't let the parents go without asking. You all have smartphones. I want you to grade yourself on how you do regulating your
5: own cell phone use. I I think the generation I come from, I don't have the same attachment to it. Mainly, I have it because I want to make sure that my wife and children are able to communicate with me. But I I, I would give myself a A because I put it down and leave it alone. <laughs>
4: That's great. Zadon? So I'm going to give myself a C. Um, yeah. I, you know, I I do the relax and chill out on my phone thing. Some days I feel better about that than others.
1: Well. I'm resourceful. I mean, if it's there, I'm going to use it to, you know, Amazon Prime shop for a second. But I think oh that, right, I mean, I utilize my resources, but I really try to, when I'm with people and, uh, and having conversations and with my family, you know, engage. So, mm-hmm. I mean... I suppose in terms of being like utilitarian, if there is a, if that's a bad thing, I am a C plus in terms of like making sure that you put it aside when you're with others. I mean, I'm a solid A, like it doesn't have
6: to be here. I would say now I'm absolutely like a D. Um, (laughs) just because, and I own my own business. So all my clients text, all my contractors text me materialists. So I just have to be on it. And I'm like you when I'm with friends and we're at dinner, it's, it's a way. And We're talking and having a good time. As
0: we had this conversation, their teens were listening in the studio. And we invited them to share their experiences navigating those conversations with their friends and family. Dallas Macias is 16. He's a sophomore at Regis Jesuit High School. On weekdays, he spends four to five hours on his phone.
7: I usually use mostly social media apps like, like Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter and stuff like that. But then my phone is also like really useful for homework because we have some stuff that we don't usually get over in class. And then I'll use my phone to make sure I have the right answer.
0: 14-year-old Elijah Mills goes to Prep Academy. He says he spends most of his screen time on Facebook Messenger and...
2: SoundCloud. I'm like big on music. And what are you doing on SoundCloud? I'm making my playlist to go to school because like I really like listening to music. helps me calm down before a stressful day.
0: Do you have an idea of how many hours you use your phone in a day?
2: I'd say right with him, like four to five hours on a weekday, mainly because I'm in school.
0: And what about a weekend?
2: Oh, weekend, it'll be like maybe six, seven hours, mainly because of music. I like music.
0: For 13-year-old Chloe Lewis, things look a little different. She's in eighth grade at Powell Middle School, and she just got her first cell phone. A flip phone. We heard from her mom, Cherie Garcia, earlier. She doesn't allow her kids to get smartphones or use social media before college. How
8: unusual does it feel to be an eighth grader without a smartphone? It's like weird sometimes when it's like, oh, these kids are pulling out their phone for a calculator. And then I pull open mine and I flip it open. and Everyone's like, what's that? (laughs) And we heard
0: from your mom that she feels like there's some real positives to not having a smartphone. Do you feel
8: like there are? I feel like there is no really right way to go with it because, like, having a smartphone is nice, but then, like, I've seen some of my friends who got a smartphone really early, like, in fourth or fifth grade, and then since then I've kind of lost contact with them because it's, like, you don't talk to me anymore because you're only concerned about what's happening on Snapchat So with a flip phone, it's definitely nice because like my mom said, you can engage in conversation a lot more and it's not like as distracting.
0: So you have to really hold those things in balance that there are pros and
8: cons to both having and not having a smartphone. But it's also kind of a flex with some of my friends sometimes because then I'll pull it out and I'll like flip open my phone and I'm like, hey guys, my iPhone 100 is here. (laughs) So
0: (laughs) tell us and Elijah, I'm curious, do you think it would change your social lives at all if you had a flip phone instead of a smartphone?
2: I feel like it wouldn't really change anything for me, except for the fact that, I mean, I already avoid social media drama, but it would just be even better because I wouldn't have to worry about who's saying what on Snap, who's beefing with who on Instagram. You can feel kind of free.
0: Can you unpack that for me a little bit more? What kind of drama do you see on Instagram and Snapchat?
2: Oh, man, a lot of people start stuff for no reason.
0: Do you know anyone who's fought in real life because of something that's said over Snapchat?
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, a few of my friends have, but only because they were pressed. Like, somebody got mad, so they pull up to our school, and then they just start trying to fight. And, like, there was really no other way to back out, so we fought, and it was just, like, really stupid. Do you just, remember
0: what the Snapchat post was that started it?
2: He was speaking on one of the rappers. He's like, NBA Young Boys trash. <laughs> <laughs> and that just started a bunch of stuff. And that's
0: what started the fight is that he, that yeah. he ragged on another rapper. Like, Dallas, what about you? How would your life change if you had a flip phone instead of a smartphone?
7: I mean, I don't think it would change that much besides the fact that I wouldn't be on it as much. I'd probably like use like time that I'm relaxing and stuff on my phone or watching TV or whatever. I'd probably use that time somewhere else.
0: And do you see much of the drama that Elijah was talking about on your social media?
7: I mean, yeah, that's usually everywhere. People just start dumb stuff because, like, you wouldn't say these things in person. And that's why these things don't get started in person as much as they do, like, over the phone.
0: On the flip side of that, though, I hear you both saying that you would be on your phones less if you didn't have smartphones. But are there ways that your smartphones are helpful tools or things that you enjoy having?
2: Oh, yeah, all the time. Like, I can, like, help my friends out. You can just go on another app and make them feel good. By just, like, saying something nice to brighten their day. Like, you don't know what's going on. Sometimes you can't say it in person, but, like, maybe you'll say it on Snap or Instagram. So and there maybe,
0: are even kind things that you would say over social media that you wouldn't necessarily say in person.
2: Yeah, like, for sure. Because some people are, like, really shy. And, like, social media for them
7: is, like, a whole other outlet.
0: Yeah. What about you? for you? How do you see your phone as a good thing?
7: Um, I think like it's a useful resource. Um, like there's tons of things that you can just look up on the internet that help you. Like I'm really into sports. So there's things that like I can look up if I'm trying to get better at something. And then there's drills that you can do to help you get better at these things.
0: So there is an element where you have a computer in your pocket and it kind of opens up another world. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. And Chloe, are you talking with your friends about the stuff that's
8: going on on social media? Uh, depends. Like, if I had social media, then it would be able to be like, oh, I saw that, and then we could talk about it. But with my friends, if they can choose if they want to tell me about it or not. And, you know, you may think starting something over a rapper's petty, but you don't know middle schoolers. And so I'm a peer mediator at my school, which is basically we solve problems with kids for the teachers. And the other day, some girls came in, like, crying. They're like, we're not going to be friends anymore. And it all started because this one girl was like, your hair looks kind of like a mess. Can I fix it for you? She said this in real life or over yeah, Snapchat? Okay. She, like, oh. And then they started, like, texting each other about it. And then, you know, they were sixth graders, so I get that, like, in sixth grade, a lot of the kids are, like, more emotional. And, like, it's still, like, oof. Some of this is just, yikes. And I feel like without the social media, sometimes it's, like, With my friends they'll tell me a problem that they're having on social media. And I'm like, I get that it's like a big deal for you. But also, if you really look at it, it's not that big. And then they're like, oh, I guess you're right. So you have kind of a
0: perspective beyond the social media that it's easier to see maybe that it's Patty. Yeah. Um, Do you guys see online bullying? Is that something that you've had to face or is that something that your friends are dealing with?
2: I haven't really experienced it because I'm really cool. I don't really (laughs) talk to nobody like that. Like, it does happen a lot. Somebody will post, like, check out this goofy. He over here trying to clown on me, but look at him. And it's just, like, really stupid. They'll be, like, trying to bully somebody and bring them down all because of what they post. And now there's, like, YOLO, where you can say things anonymous. That's an app? Yeah. People can say whatever they want on it. Like, people will just really bring you down on it. Like, they'll be like, oh, you're ugly oh you should go kill yourself or something like that because like you're never gonna find love all that just because of what they post and everything some of them are doing it for attention and some of them just like are truly just trying to bring somebody down
0: wow that's really cutting now I'd like to hear from you all what kind of conversations do your families have about phones
7: it's interesting because like we used to have like more I would say when I was younger like now that I'm older, like, we don't have to have too many talks about the cell phones. It'll just get taken away if I'm being rude or something like that.
0: What about you, Elijah? How does your family talk about phones?
2: I like hearing it sometimes just as like a reminder, but other times it's like so stressful. Because like, i got to sit there for a whole lecture I heard about like 20 minutes ago.
0: Do you ever hear your parents' voice kind of in the back of your head when you're doing something on your phone or you're making a choice oh, yeah. about what's posed?
2: Yeah, all the time. I have to be real careful about what I post now. Some people don't realize it, but what you post, somebody can screenshot that and use that against you. And you can can try to deny it all you want, but it's still going to be in their photos. Like, you may have deleted it, but it's never gone like my dad said.
0: That's a lot to think about, just the permanence of the things that happen on the Internet. Now, we ask your parents a lot about your phone use. I want to ask you about your parents. Is there anything that you would want to change about how your parents use their phones?
7: Yes, I think... (laughs) There'll be times where she'll literally be, like, texting someone, and I'll, like, ask her a question and then repeat it, like, two or three more times. And then she won't hear it, I don't think. But I don't know. The people that she is texting when she's not listening to me is for work and stuff. So I understand that.
0: Do you ever call each other out?
7: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I do all the time because, like, we know have a pretty good relationship, so we can joke around with each other.
2: Elijah, what about for you? I agree with him a lot. Like, my parents will sometimes be so locked in. And it's like, I'm trying to talk to you, and you're always telling me, but I listen. But then they're always yelling at me, like, get off that phone. I should do the same thing. I really should.
0: (laughs) Do you ever have conversations with your parents about the way they use their phones?
2: I mean, I'd rather not.
8: That could be a hard conversation. Chloe, what about for you? Yeah, it's very much like... I'll come into my mom's office to ask her a question and like she won't hear me first when I say mom and I'll be like mom 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 I'm trying to ask you a question mother and as for the conversation thing I don't really want to talk to her about it because I don't want to be like grounded because I'm like mom can you get off your phone you're on it way too much and then she's like don't tell me to get off my phone.
0: That's Chloe Lewis. I spoke with her, Dallas Macias, and Elijah Mills along with their parents for CPR's special series, Teens Under Stress. Up next, what this week's election might say about how Coloradans want to shape the state. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Even the best vehicles have an expiration date, but you can ensure that your old four-wheeled friend lives on by donating it to CPR. Help support Colorado Public Radio. Learn how on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. This week's election was about more than sports betting and taxes for roads and schools. Ed Seelover from the Denver Business Journal says the candidates, divisions and issues all boil down to one question. Do Coloradans like their city's rate of growth or did they decide to do something to slow or change that trajectory? Ed, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on today. Let's start with the Denver metro area. We'll break down some of the cities in a moment, but generally speaking, do residents like their city's rates of growth?
9: Well, it was a question we started asking two years ago, actually, when I was watching the 2017 municipal elections, and I saw some things that were really a preview of what was to come in that. For example, two years ago, Lakewood elected a a pretty solidly anti-growth council, and then Lakewood turns around in July and passes a growth cap. Or the city of Greenwood Village uh, elects a a pretty solidly anti-growth council and you just haven't seen any growth coming out of Greenwood Village. Meanwhile, in the same election, Westminster went for a very pro-growth mayor, and they are booming on their downtown project. So we looked back at it this year and said, "Okay, how do voters feel? And I really expected to see a continuation of some of the same trends. But I was surprised uh, after the elections on Tuesday night to see, really, the trend is most voters in most cities ringing Denver uh, said, no, I want to go with the mayoral candidate who wants less restrictions on growth. Over the one who was proposing more restrictions on growth.
0: And kind of in that theme, cities like Thornton and further north in Greeley, they chose these pro growth candidates. In what ways might we see cities grow?
9: Well, you can see it in a couple of ways. Um, One of them, and and, and I'll jump right into kind of a specific city here, is Aurora. And of course, uh, I think this always goes with the tag. Aurora's mayoral election is not yet decided because there are 15,000 ballots still uncounted for some reason. Um, But you look at a candidate like Mike Kaufman, uh, and he was who is in the lead right now. And he was saying, look, we are growing. People are complaining about traffic, which is a very common theme uh, when you talk about growth, that our roads are becoming too too congested, let's do something about it. And his uh, his suggestion was not to halt growth, but to actually bring more businesses into the city of Aurora so that people could drive shorter distances to their primary employers and have less congestion on the roads. That's the kind of growth thinking. It's not all about unabated uh, development of suburbs or suburban-type areas these days. It's about new ways to grow the city to deal with problems rather than stopping growth to try to deal with problems.
0: Going into these growth factors a little bit more, I understand that there were a few pro-drilling candidates that won their elections as well?
9: Yeah, absolutely. And you saw that in Thornton. Jan Coleman, the new mayor up there, is actually an employee of an oil and gas company. Uh, You saw that uh, with the mayoral uh, candidate who won up in Greeley as well, John Gates. Um, And in some cities, Rather than growth, drilling is the issue, and, and drilling is kind of uh, an issue that is both uh, an issue about growth of business. Well, we continue to allow you know companies to to grow their activities in our area, and it also deals with the fact that the growth of uh, city residences is kind of impinging on, or the growth of the oil uh, industry is impinging on city residences. So, um, I think when you see cities backing pro-drilling mayoral candidates, it's a little bit about saying, look, the economic growth is the important issue to us. We want to make sure that these people who work for these companies continue to have jobs and have something to do. So in some ways, I think the pro-drilling candidates work into the pro-growth aspect that we're seeing uh, from Tuesday's vote.
0: And were there any exceptions to the general pro-growth trend?
9: Yes, the one was Broomfield. Uh, Broomfield is a city that's been at the heart of the drilling issues with uh, folks saying, look, we don't want uh, drilling in our city, despite the fact that uh, a major driller has has cut deals with the city saying, OK, we'll do it in this way. Here's the restrictions we'll put on ourselves. There's a very anti-fracking slate that was elected to city council, not necessarily the mayoral race, uh, but city council. And I think that'll be interesting to see how that plays out, especially uh, in opposition to how some of these things are playing out in Thornton or Commerce City or Greeley where the council seems a little bit more willing to allow more growth of drilling.
0: Now speaking of exceptions just four months ago Lakewood voters approved the establishment of a one percent cap on residential units but they re-elected Mayor Adam Paul who opposes the limit. Tell me more about that cap and what Paul's re-election says.
9: It it was, I I will admit it, to me it was the most surprising result from the municipal elections on Tuesday night. Uh, The 1% growth cap basically says uh, we can only grow the number of residential units by 1%, and that is either a house counts as one or an apartment counts as one, and that was really the issue in Lakewood, is there was fear that the number of apartments going in there were clogging traffic. Uh, Ramey Johnson, who ran against Adam Paul, linked the uh, growth in apartments to uh, increase in crime, for example, Uh, and, and and it appeared that Lakewood was going down a solidly anti-growth trajectory. Paul comes around, though, and his campaign was an interesting one, not saying, look, you voted for this, and now I want to repeal it. It was saying, there are exceptions to how we can do this. For example, the 1% camp doesn't apply to blighted urban areas. And that's a specific designation that the city has to put on an area. And he said, then let's do that. Let's concentrate our growth in areas like West Colfax that need a facelift and not worry about the rest of the city. And he was still pushing a very, look, we're going to grow agenda. And and Paul's, Paul's, point behind this was, if we stop building housing, housing prices are going to go up. Just look at what's happened in Boulder since they put on their growth cap 20 something years ago. And the people who work at, say, St. Anthony's Hospital won't be able to afford to live in our town. And so he was looking for ways around the cap to continue growing. Johnson was very much uh, in the in the mindset of, no, this is, let's stop our growth here and let's take a look at our other problems. And voters swung Paul's way. It seemed, it seemed kind of threading a needle in some ways between initiatives of 200 and the more rampant growth that was happening that led to the passage of Initiative 200.
0: So city growth, it really isn't cut and dry, even when you're looking at who supports it and who's against it. Boulder has a cabin in place. How popular is it with neighboring cities?
9: You know, uh, I think that when people talk about the downsides of growth limitations, they always point to Boulder. And that includes uh, some of the neighboring cities, although neighboring cities in in Boulder County have grown because of it. But, you know, it it, it drives up uh, housing prices because you limit the supply of housing. Uh, yes, you are, you know, limiting the infrastructure services that you have to give to housing if you limit the amount of it. Um, but it's really an issue of... Of cost And I think especially at a time when we have seen uh, prices grow unabated for the last eight years in the Denver metro area, whether on apartments or single family homes, people are becoming more concerned about the affordability of housing than they are about the growth of housing in this area.
0: Now, what about boom cities like Arvada that have largely welcomed new employers and residents and seen changes to the charm of Old Town Arvada? Did voters there push back against growth?
9: In some ways, yes. I mean, you saw that there was a candidate, Harriet Hall, who was saying, look, I'm not a no growth candidate. I'm a smart growth candidate. And if I get elected, that means we probably will see less growth because I want to worry more about water and transit services and making sure that any any new area that we approve has, has connected to them. But Arvada... I, I guess uh, likes the way it's growing. In fact, that was pretty much mayor Mark Williams, slogan. He's been the mayor there for eight years. This'll be his final term that he's just won. And he won it by a 10 point margin again. And, and to me that said that, look, this is, this is maybe the, the city that is growing the fastest in the Denver area. It's seen a 13% boost in population in the past nine years. Other cities have seen bigger boosts, but let's remember Arvada is, I believe the seventh largest city in Colorado. So that's a pretty big growth rate for it. Um, And, uh, and, and folks, I think, generally cast ballots saying, yeah, we are worried about the traffic. Um, this is a city that actually approved a bond issue last year to improve some of its infrastructure at a time when other cities and, say, the state of Colorado is rejecting transportation bond issues. Um, and and we're, we want to do something to manage that growth. But we're happy with the way that people are continuing to come here. Businesses are continuing to come to Arvada.
0: A lot to unpack in city growth. Thanks, Ed, so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Ed Sealever is a reporter for the Denver Business Journal, where he covers government and economic development. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's hard to ignore the big blue horse at Denver International Airport. The 32-foot sculpture towers over Peña Boulevard, its eyes glowing red. Colloquially known as to Denverites as Blucifer, some love it, some hate it, some love to hate it, and many are curious about it. They sent us questions through Colorado Wonders.
7: So I was just wondering who changes the light bulbs in the eyes of the big blue horse. I'd love a good piece on how the artist was inspired to create him.
0: CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf has the
10: answers. First of all, if you call the horse Lucifer when you're around airport staff, you will most certainly get corrected. The artwork's official name is Mustang. Colleen Donahoe is the airport's public art manager. I mean, it's nice that people talk about him. There's a number of public art collections that people don't talk about, right? So we're lucky to have that aspect, but we see him as more than that. To help Adam Horst and Michael Gunstensen better understand that Mustang is a work of fine art, Donahoe takes us to see it.
0: And his eyes don't look as red in the sunlight, do they?
10: Up close, you realize how much incredible detail you miss when you drive past. The defined ribs on the horse's flanks. The bulging veins along its face and belly. The texture of its coat. You can also see a bit of cracking, which conservators were scheduled to work on not long after our visit. Speaking to the conservators, they said that this is
0: like one of the most extreme environments that you could stick a sculpture like this in.
10: Donahoe says Mustang has to withstand the rain, hail, intense wind, and for the first time, spray paint. A vandal recently managed to spray graffiti on its lower leg, which was quickly removed without damage to the artwork. Adam Horst lives in Aurora. He's the one who asked Colorado Wonders about the artist. He thinks the sculpture is a fun and weird welcome to Colorado and Denver.
7: The Mustang's very colorado and then it takes a hard left turn with the blue and the red eyes.
10: And he's heard all this lore about the piece, that it's cursed, how it killed its creator, which it did. That part is true. New Mexico artist Luis Jimenez died in 2006 at 65 after a part of Mustang came loose while he was working on it. It severed an artery in his leg and he bled to death. Mustang was completed by Jimenez's studio and installed in 2008, more than 15 years after it was commissioned. Its striking blue color and glowing red eyes were controversial from the start. Lakewood-based Michael Gunstanson says he got to thinking about Mustang after a conversation with his mother-in-law.
11: She had been out here several times and had seen the blue horse. And, you know, we both at the same time basically said, I wonder who changes the, the lights and the eyes. And so I said, well, I know who to ask.
10: Turns out the eyes are LED floodlights. Colleen Donahoe pulls out a binder full of photos from Mustang's installation.
3: I think there's a picture in there of
10: them screwing in the light bulb. In the last seven years, the airport's electrical team has changed them just twice. Those red eyes, though, that people call demonic, are actually a tribute to the artist's father. Jimenez was born in El Paso, Texas, in 1940. And as a kid, he apprenticed at his father's neon sign shop. There, he learned how to weld and paint. His widow, Susie Jimenez, says he was working there as young as six.
3: So he grew up with this strong tradition of working with your hands. Susie Jimenez says
10: Mustang required painstaking work to shape the detailed form.
3: He'd take quarter-inch steel rebar and cover the rebar with this kind of wire mesh. Then once he had that, he would take clay and you would heat it and roll it up and just place it on piece by piece, A, a
10: true labor of love. Luis Jimenez studied architecture and then fine art at the University of Texas. He spent time honing his skills in Mexico City and New York. But working with his hands remained a huge part of his process. Here is Jimenez in a video for the Smithsonian American Art Museum in D.C., which has a number of his works, including, in fact, a cowboy riding a blue-bucking horse.
12: I was trying to keep the process I used as close to the industrial process as possible because I felt it was a, I don't know, for lack of a better term, maybe a blue-collar a blue process. I, I didn't want to go for that art process.
10: Susie Jimenez invited me to see the musting mold in her late husband's studio in Hondo a rural town in New Mexico. Kind
3: of the belly of the
12: beast.
10: If you want to climb in there, just so you can see it. This is me insi- inside of Mustang. Dale Cronkwright says Jimenez was a master of coloration. He was a longtime friend of Jimenez and is the head of conservation at the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum in Santa Fe. He also did conservation on a number of Jimenez's works, including Mustang.
12: There was no surface on any Luis Jimenez sculpture that was ever any less than six different colors, each airbrush separately, adding a slightly different tone.
10: He says Jimenez often included flake, that glittery quality you see on low-rider cars. Some critics found it too flashy, but others saw his bright-colored, shimmering artwork as a symbol of the Chicano and working-class experience in the American West, a nod to his own heritage. Cronkright sees that in Mustang, which he thinks is a brilliant work of art.
12: My takeaway from Mustang is this defiance, this absolute expression of difference, identity, having a place, standing strong, being fiery, being gigantic.
10: That gigantic part proved to be an engineering challenge for Jimenez, though.
12: Ironically, one of the conversations we had on the phone, he was talking about how Mustang was going, and he said, you know, this work is going to kill me. I just know it. And that was just this, um, at, at the time, humorous comment about how exhausting it was trying to figure out the engineering.
10: Susie Jimenez says it was important to finish Mustang, using paint formulas and models her late husband left behind.
3: It was his life's work. I mean, he was a mature artist at that point. He got the commission in 92, and it was, I mean, years of living with this sculpture. She says some of the early
10: sketches had Mustang as yellow even pink. But he decided on blue, modeling it after one of his own horses, a blue Appaloosa. She's happy that the piece gets people talking, but she does want to clarify one thing.
3: The eyes do not have any evil intent whatsoever.
10: The airport still receives emails for and against Mustang. Critics say stuff like, he scares children, or you should paint him orange like the Broncos. D.I.A.'s Stacy Stegman says the artwork is a point of pride for the airport. That we have this
11: fierce blue Mustang that we look at as kind of a protector of travelers
10: guarding this airport. She thinks there would be public outcry if the airport did do anything to it. Michael Gunstensen tells Stegman he'd lead that charge. You and I will lay down there on the ground together.
4: <laughs> We're with you. We'll chain ourselves
10: to Mustang and he's not going anywhere. And so... Mustang will stay put and stay blue, as the artist intended. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News.
0: It piqued our curiosity with just the title, Flame Broiled or the Ugly Play. It's a fast-paced, satirical take on race and bias in America at local theater company in Boulder. Denver-based Rodney Hicks wrote the play. This is Hicks' first fully staged work. Rodney, welcome to the program.
11: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: We'll get into the meaning of that title in a moment. <laughs> uh, first, a few things led you to write this play. One of them is you're diagnosed with spasmodic dysphonia. That's a voice disorder, and you lost your voice from it. That's a huge problem, since at the time you were a Broadway actor and singer. Yes. What happened?
11: Well, I was diagnosed with uh, having spasmodic dysphonia, which uh, is a condition, neurological condition, that affects the brain's transmission to the larynx. And uh, I just slowly started. I was in Come From Away on Broadway. Uh, and actually started in Toronto, and I just started slowly losing my voice. And I was at the doctor's every week when we were on Broadway. And I uh, was getting different diagnoses, and still doing the show. And by the fifth month, the doctor thought, how are you even still doing the show? <laughs> and, uh, and I said, I have no idea. I was having panic attacks every day. Um, and when it was diagnosed, uh, they said, you'll never be able to sing again. You'll never be able to talk clearly again. And uh, I thought that was going to be true. I thought that the rest of my life I'd have to do... Um, Botox injections to my throat, which I had three, uh, sessions of in order to communicate. And my father died, uh, last year in March 12th. And that morning I could sing again. I would excuse me, sing again and talk again rather. And then, uh, I regained the ability to sing on my birthday on March 28th in 2018. And I thought I was going to, Oh yes, I'll go back to Broadway, and I, you know, and I, and I realized I did two musicals this year, uh, that didn't have the typical eight shows a week, and I realized, oh, I'm kind of done, um, meaning uh, being uh, a Broadway musical theater artist, and um, because I just knew that what it takes to do eight times a week, and I knew that well, okay, but I had to go through a period of grieving a uh, long period of grieving, and um, sitting in it. And so when I came to that final conclusion, uh, which was several weeks ago, um, I was okay with it. And now Flame Borough or the Ugly Play.
0: Wow, that is so much life change. How did all of that lead you to writing a play about race and bias in the country?
11: You know, I, I've written uh, two other plays, and they all have uh, trauma in it, uh, deals with trauma and overcoming it. And so Flame Burrow or the Ugly Play, that really... I just thought I wanted to write a play about race and culture. And I actually texted a friend when I said that and they were like, oh yeah, okay. And I saw an encounter of a man and a woman crossing a street. And, uh, you know, the woman, she was white, he was black. And as they passed, she uh, clutched her purse and then let go of it as he passed away. He was in an Armani suit (laughs) and was paying no attention to her. And I sat in my car watching this, uh, not fueled with anger or anything like that. I was watching it going, oh. I think I can write a play from this. Not from that actual event, but what I saw was inherited American trauma. Mm-hmm. I didn't look at it and go, Ugh, oh, of course. you know. No. I saw it from another place and went, wow, what brought that woman to do that action just as if it was just natural? And what caused that man to purposely ignore it? But yet, I could see his head go up a little higher and sadder and I could feel her energy getting sad too. Why did I do you know so it wasn't about a blame. I thought ooh that's conditioned. That that how did that start? So then I um flash forward I was invited to take a master class with Paula Vogel through the Dramatists Guild uh, of America through their conference that was happening a couple of months later. And I'm in this amazing cl- class with all of these amazing playwrights and Paula Vogel, <laughs> you know, who, if you don't know, Paula Vogel is a multi- Tony Award winner, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner. I mean, she's everything, you know. And I'm in this class four-hour class that felt I could have sat in that class forever.
0: And this cast is just a handful of people playing more than 30 roles. Mm-hmm. How do you write from so many different perspectives?
11: Well, because I'm crazy. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'm an artist, you know, and I, I and I am an artist, a unique artist, where um, I am also a transformational actor, um, so that I love playing all different types of characters. So, in terms of writing this play, I thought, oh, let's have this be a lot of many, many people. But also, I thought about George C. Wolfe and his Colored Museum, which has seven characters, but they all play many, many different characters. It's nonlinear. Uh, and take that, take Norman Lear, all that, what he does with Subversion and mix it in a pot and create people who are going through it and are trying to overcome it in their own way. And let's see what happens.
0: Okay, now this title... Yes. Flame Broiled or the Ugly Play. Where does that come from?
11: Yes. That title came from Paula Vogel's class, uh, where at the end of the four hour class, she gave us uh, an assignment, a bake off. And she said, um, i like for you to write a three to four minute play in a half an hour about uh, a black or a person, a black person or person of color explaining to an out of touch white person the importance of voting. Go. And so. <laughs> That's where the first scene, I Have a Nightmare, came from from in that class. And it was a white woman, a black woman. And I just thought, they're in a Burger King, flame broiled. And the nature of it, and the ugly play came later because the play is broken down in in the whole three-story art uh, that we have in in terms of uh, writing. And the first part is flame broiled uh, from the opening of the play all the way through the end of what's called the mating game. And then when we get to Strange Fruit through to the verdict, that's the ugly play. Then when we get to Joy and Mary or Mary and Joy and um, ah, Jerome and Nate or Nate and Jerome, that's where we find the joy. And you have to get through the ugly to see the joy in Flamborough or the ugly play.
0: I like that. Of one review, it described this play as an urgent, frenetic take on bias in America, why were you interested in that kind of hurried energy?
11: Well, because that's the world, honey. <laughs> <laughs> that's the world we're in, right? It's like, because also, you know, there was two different takes of this show in terms of uh, uh, my take on directing it. Was The first, first was between each transition, we had uh, between each vignette, we had transitions built in uh, where it was movement-based. And uh, you actually had silent scenes that uh, you saw the characters before they spoke. And it was pretty. It was great. It was artful. But then it was like, mm, I think this play needs to keep moving and stop in its tracks when it does. But yet, even when it's at its standstill in its most quieted place, the audience, they're they're the ones who are frenetic. They're the ones who are still going in their minds going, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. Because it's a lot in the best way possible. But like the energy of our world and the energy of everything that's going on in America, it's fast. So the first line of the show is buckle up. Please buckle up. Buckle the F up.
0: (laughs) Um, That's amazing. Rodney, thank you so much for joining us. Denver-based playwright Rodney Hicks, his new work, Flame Broiled or The Ugly Play. It runs through November 17th at the Dairy Art Center in Boulder. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.